0: verses 1 to 45. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he passed through Samaria. So he came... to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied, and or Jesus wearied, and he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "Give me a drink." The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the well that I will give him Will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw here. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you are now, ha- and the one you now have is not your husband. What, he, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. All our fathers worshipped on these mountains, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought worship." Jesus said to her, "Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem." Will you worship the Father? You, will, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, "I know that the Messiah is coming. who is called the Christ. Then he comes, and he will tell us all things." Jesus said to her, "I who speak to you, am He." Then his disciples came back. They marvelled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, "What do you seek? Or what are you talking? Why are you talking with her?" The woman left with her. "'water jar and went away to the town "'and said to the people, "'Come, see the man who told me all that I have ever done. "'Can this be the Christ?' "'They went out from the town and were coming to him. "'Meanwhile his disciples were urging him, saying, "'Rabbi, eat.' "'But he said to them, "'I have food to eat that you do not know about.' "'So his disciples said to one another, "'Has anyone brought him something to eat?' Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, There are yet four months, then come the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and you'll see that there are fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true: one who sows and the other reaps. I sent to you or I sent to you a reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into the their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I have ever did. So then the Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no, long, or has no honor in his own town. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for
1: they too had gone to the feast. A lone man travels the dense forest. There isn't a sound apart from the chirping of the birds and the gentle breeze, rustling through the leaves. Suddenly from out of the forest springs a figure, as covered in fur hanging down to its toes with a great wooden face painted half black and half tawny, with a huge twisted mouth. Slowly it advances with a strange rattling instrument in its hand, rattling and dancing as it approaches. Terrified, the man shrinks back, In an age far more wild and far less politically correct than our own, this man set into the wilderness with the message of salvation to the North American Indians. They were viewed by most Europeans as subhuman, incapable of receiving grace. But still he poured out his life for them. He faced bitter winters, tuberculosis, his own melancholy moods, and the constant threat of murder at the hands of the very people that he sought to reach. But weak and sickly since childhood, this man seemed an unlikely candidate for the arduous task in front of him. What would cause this sickly, frail man to travel through the wilderness, risking his life for wild men like these? It was this commitment. Here I am. Send me. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me to the rough, the savage pagans of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfort on earth. Send me even to death itself. If it be but thy service and to promote thy kingdom, he did it for God. David Brainerd reached out to people who were lost, so lost and so far from grace because he knew the grace of the God that had saved him. He personally knew the power of God's grace. He knew that apart from God's grace, he too would be under God's curse, a vile and helpless sinner hear this excerpt from his journal, Friday, February 3rd, 1744. I am now more sensible than ever that God alone is the author and finisher of our faith. In essence, that the whole and every part of sanctification and every good work, word, or thought found in me is the effect of his power and grace, that without him I can do nothing. In the strictest sense, strictest sense, than that he works in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure, and from no other motive. Oh, how amazing it is that people can talk so much about men's power and goodness, when if God did not hold us back every moment, we should be devils incarnate. In this light, David Brainerd frequently resolved in his mind and thought that we were to prize the continuation of life only on this account, that we may show forth God's goodness and works of grace. For years he faithfully served, yet for years he saw no visible fruit for his ministry. He ministered to a people whose hearts were hard towards him and hard towards the Lord, he even questioned his own heart before the Lord again and again, yet he persisted. David Brainerd loved and reached out to a people who were considered subhuman and not worth the attention of many in the religious establishment because he knew the love of his God. And it wasn't until close to the end of his own life at the age of 29 that David Brainerd finally saw many conversions. When the Lord moved, he moved powerfully. Brainerd testified, What amazing things has God wrought in this space of time for this poor people? What a surprising change appears in their tempers and behavior. How are morose and savage pagans in this short period, period transformed into an agreeable, affectionate, and humble Christians? And their drunken and pagan howlings turned into devout and fervent praises to God. They who were sometimes in darkness are now become light in the Lord. A week before he died, Brainerd wrote in his journal, Oh, that God's kingdom might come in the world, that they might all love and glorify him for what he is in himself, and that the blessed Redeemer might see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Brainerd reached out to these savage pagans because he knew that the promise that the Lord had made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 was true. That in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed, and that that also included the Indians in North America. Brainerd knew that the prophecy that was given to John in Revelation 7 9 and 10 would be fulfilled. Jesus, upon learning that the Pharisees had heard that his ministry had grown even beyond that of John the Baptist, left Judea and headed to Galilee. This was most likely in order to avoid a premature uh, confrontation with the Pharisees. But no journey of Jesus was by accident. He had a very important appointment to make along the way. This morning we're going to hear about this strange encounter and a strange encounter that is it's so infinitely more shocking even than the one that david Brainerd experienced with that pagan witch doctor the encounter that we're going to, to discuss this morning confronts issues of true judgment true worship and true evangelism now this morning i'm going to be focusing on true judgment and next week on true worship and true evangelism. But I want us to see this morning how Jesus, in his encounter with this Samaritan woman, went across cultural and religious boundaries in order to reach out to this woman who was viewed as less than human by the Jews, as, as being the offscouring of the world. And Jesus, in so doing, showed. That the witness of even Samaritans would testify that he truly is the Son of God. So Jesus in his route had to go straight through Samaria. It would actually, it was actually the most direct route for him to travel from from Jerusalem straight through Samaria back to Galilee, where he'd begun his ministry. But the Samaritans were so hated by many Jews that that often they would actually take the the circuitous route, that they'd actually rather cross the Jordan twice in order to to avoid going through Samaria. They they hated the Samaritans so much that they didn't even want to see them. And this hatred was mutual. Now, thankfully, this kind of hatred isn't often seen in our culture today, here in North America, most of us would agree that our culture has descended from bad to worse in, in many areas, but, but one that I think we could probably agree on is the fact that, that a lot of these, these prejudices have been removed, at least on, on national, on, on, uh, on the, the, based on the, the culture that somebody comes from. Unfortunately, though, most of the prejudice that that we see in this culture is actually leveled against us as Christians. People hate us because they hate the God that we love and serve. But Jesus here had, had an important message for his disciples and for us in reaching out to this Samaritan woman. In order to understand this hatred, we need a brief biblical history lesson in the time of the division between Judah and Israel, the wicked king Omri named the new capital of the northern kingdom Samaria in 1 Kings 16.24. And under the reign of another wicked king, the king of Samaria, under sorry, the name of another wicked king, Hosea, the king of Assyria captured, captured Samaria and deported the Israelites because of their sin in following other gods. We find that in 2 Kings 17.5-6. and 6. And then the Assyrians resettled Samaria with other foreigners who didn't fear the Lord, so the Lord sent lions among them in 2 Kings 17, 24-33. The king of Assyria then repatriated an exiled priest who had lived in Bethel in order to teach people the fear of the Lord, but it seemed to have very little lasting effect because the people there feared the Lord but still continued to worship their own pagan idols. And the Israelites who had been left in Samaria intermarried with these foreigners and incorporated these pagan practices into their own religion. And they did the unthinkable. They feared the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Verse 33. They even went so far as to set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. And as a result... The Jews viewed them with disdain. They saw the the Samaritans as pagan half-breeds. And this Samaritan syncretism, or mixing of religions, and the Jews' hatred of the Samaritans for this reason, continued for generations, even to the time of Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves in our narrative this morning. Jesus came to the town of Samaria called Sychar. It's on the eastern slopes of Mount Ebal. Now this is the land that, that Jacob had given to Joseph as his inheritance in Genesis chapter 48. And Joseph's bones had been buried there in Joshua 24, 32. This is also the place where Israel was to gather in Deuteronomy eleven twenty-six 26 to 32, with one half on Mount Ebal and one half on Mount Gerizim, and the people would pass through the middle. Mount Ebal represented the curse of the Lord, and Mount Gerizim represented the blessing of the Lord. Now this, this site actually exists to this day. You can actually visit Jacob's well even to this point. And there's actually a fair bit of certainty that this is the actual site where this had taken place, which is, which is really rare in archaeology to be able to find the exact, the exact location. But the disciples went into town to buy food, but Jesus, Jesus stopped there at Jacob's well. He was wearied from his journey, so he sat down Beside the well and rested at the sixth hour, that is noon. Now, as an aside, Jesus' weariness shows his humanity. At times he hungered and thirsted and grew weary. He really was God and man. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Now, in our culture today, we probably tend to take that for granted. It seems in our culture that the deity of Christ is questioned far more than his humanity. But in the early church, in in the 5th century, there was such a heresy surrounding the fact that that they would say that Jesus was, was God but was not fully human that it caused the Council of Chalcedon to be convened in 451 AD in order to deal with the heresy. The Chalcedonian Creed declares... "...we then, following the Holy Fathers with all one consent, teach men to confess one and the same God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man." So there can be no question that Jesus is it has a duality in his nature. He is both God and man uh, in, in one essence. He shares the same essence with God, yet he is fully and completely a human being. We needed a God to to come and to pay the penalty for our sins, and we needed a man to pay for our sins because it was man who sinned against God. So only a God-man could be our Redeemer. But Jesus here in John chapter 4 didn't come to this well merely for a drink. He had someone that he wanted to meet. He had a divine appointment to keep. In verse 7, a Samaritan woman arrived to draw water from the well. Now this would have been an odd time for her to make a trip to the well at noon in the heat of the day, it was also odd that she would have come here alone. Usually the women would go as a group to the well, and it was a social time. D.A. Carson suggests that, that, that this fact points to the nature of her sin and points to the fact that, that she was an outcast in her own culture. And we'll see the nature of her sin in just a few moments. Jesus had no container with which to draw water, so he broke social protocol by telling her to give him a drink. She was shocked. She said to him in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Not only was he talking to a woman, but he was talking to a Samaritan woman and a very sinful one at that Jesus is here overruling social paradigms. We hear a lot of, of garbage in the media today about the, about the way that, that Christianity oppresses women. Brothers and sisters, Christianity liberates women. Look at any culture around the world where Christianity is not in the forefront. And look at the way women are treated. Think about Muslim countries where, they, where women are covered in burqas where only their eyes are showing, and if that through, through a, a mesh screen, and that, that stinking hot climate, and they're forced to walk several paces behind their husbands. Or in China, where the vast majority of, of young girls are aborted before they even see the light of day. Or in India, where, where widows are thrown on the funeral pyre of their husbands because they're, they're, seen, they're seen as his possession and to be killed along with their husband. But Jesus here is reaching out to a woman. He's is, he is going beyond what the culture would have allowed. And the fact that this was a Samaritan woman made matters far, far worse. Because according to the Mishnah, the superficial Pharisaical laws that had been added to God's law, Samaritan women were treated as ceremonially unclean from the moment they were born. But Jesus pays no regard to any of these things. He answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If she knew that the Messiah was standing right there in front of her and offering her the gift of eternal life, she is the one that would have been doing the asking. Here we see themes that have been a current running through John's gospel, that of water and purification. Now we're going to return to this concept of living water in John chapter 7, where Jesus says in verse 38 that whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the Christian. But the woman doesn't understand To this point, she's thinking merely in natural terms. She talks to Jesus about physical water and asks if he is then somehow greater than Jacob, whose well this had once been. But something far, far greater than Jacob was there in front of her. The Pharisees asked Jesus a similar question in John 8, 53, asking if Jesus was greater than Abraham. Abraham. And his response was something they were completely unprepared for. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They understood that Jesus was declaring himself to be Yahweh, and so they took up stones to stone him. He responds to the woman, or he responds to them in verses. It responds to the woman in verses 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will well up in him to a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But still, the woman didn't get it. So she says to Jesus, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But now Jesus cuts to the chase. He tells her to call her husband. And she responds that she doesn't have one. He confirms her statement, revealing that she has had five husbands and was living in yet another adulterous relationship. Her problem wasn't physical thirst, it was spiritual thirst. She was dying of spiritual thirst and she didn't even know it. She had been committing the same sin that the people of Israel had committed in Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We do exactly the same thing whenever we seek out fleshly gratification in the things that God despises. We are rejecting God and seeking pleasures that will never satisfy. This woman needed to turn away from her sin and turn to Jesus. He had exposed her sin like rolling away a log reveals the creepy creatures hidden underneath. Have you ever been in a situation where someone confronts you with your sin, especially a a sin that you thought was secret? How did you respond? Your heart probably began to race. Blood may have rushed to your face. Maybe a few beads of sweat even appeared on your forehead. Perhaps tears even welled up in your eyes. It doesn't feel very nice to have your sin exposed and I speak from personal experience here. But it's what you do afterwards that reveals your eternal destiny. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what do you do after somebody has confronted you with your sin? Do you deny it? Maybe you try to lie, saying that you've never done that thing. But one day, every deed is going to be exposed before the great white throne. Every good deed, and every wicked deed, not only before the gathered mass of humanity, but before a holy God. The truth will come out. Many people try to, many people are more concerned about what other people think about their sin than what God thinks about their sin. Do you excuse? Maybe you admit the sin, but try to blame your sin on your upbringing or the sins of others committed against you, or ignorance of how to act appropriately. Beloved, true repentance doesn't make any excuse. It confesses, it agrees with the verdict, and turns away from the sin. Do you justify? Maybe you try to draw attention to to your own righteousness in other areas. But a man who is condemned in court for murder will earn no sympathy from the judge because he has not committed adultery. James says in 2.10 that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Or do you criticize your critic? Maybe you complain that the individual who approached you you, didn't do so as gently or as tenderly as they should have. Or maybe you think that they're biased against you. Or maybe you condemn, condemn them as a sinner whose testimony is invalid in the courtroom of your mind. But newsflash. Unless the unlike the one who was confronting the Samaritan woman at the well, whenever anybody comes to talk to you about your sin, he or she is a sinner. They won't do it perfectly, but no matter who they are or how approach you, how they approach you, their failings will not absolve you. Now, of course, these are all wrong reactions. If you find yourself doing these things, you need to go to God and ask him to grant you true repentance. You need to go to the cross. And the response of somebody who has truly gone to the cross will be completely different. True repentance bears fruit. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that, that worldly sorrow produces death, but godly sorrow produces repentance. That leads to to salvation without regret and Paul goes on in verse 11 for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation what fear what longing what zeal what punishment at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter if you are truly repentant your behavior will change And that change won't be like so many New Year's resolutions that uh, that last for a day or a week or a month. It's lasting change. It's permanent change. No, you're not going to obey perfectly, but your life will be characterized by growth in that area, by increasing obedience in that area. Remember that repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior. Now, I've known many drug addicts who had turned away from doing drugs. And many of them, even to the point that they never touched drugs again for the rest of their lives. But what they had done was not repentance because there had been no change of heart. There had been no change of heart. You don't change your behavior so that your heart changes, The change in behavior must be preceded by a change in heart. And that is something that we cannot do ourselves. We must go to God who grants us repentance. If God has changed your heart, you will begin to hate what you once loved and love what you once hated. You will see that the sin that you once loved is actually your mortal enemy. You will turn to Jesus with a heart of love. You will prefer others above yourself. If your heart changes, your behavior will follow suit. So we can learn here, I believe, from the Samaritan woman. We do not know what happened to her later on, but she certainly seemed to be headed in the right direction. The narrative of John 4 doesn't track her actions on into the future, but her response to Jesus points to the fact that her repentance was genuine. She testifies in verse 19, Sir, I believe that you are a prophet. She was acknowledging that Jesus had supernatural knowledge. Now we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 24 next week, but in verse 25, she says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. The Samaritans acknowledged the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as being canonical. They didn't accept anything of the rest of the books of the Old Testament, just those first five books. But the Samaritan woman would have understood Moses' words in Deuteronomy 18 15 and 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus declares to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I speak to you, am he. He is declaring to this Samaritan woman that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Now, if you think a moment about the the relationship between the, the Jews and the Samaritans, this should be remarkable. In fact, it's at this very moment that Jesus' disciples return from their shopping trip. And they're they're amazed at what's happening there in front of them, but they're too bewildered even to ask him what's going on. Why Jesus is, is talking to this Samaritan woman. The woman responds to Jesus and his conviction of her sin. She drops her water jar and runs to town to tell them. What she had seen and heard, forgetting all about her trip to the well and to gather water. Spoiler warning here, she testifies in verses 29 and 39 that Jesus had exposed all of her guilt. And she's wondering that she has seen the Christ but it gets even more beautiful. We find out in verses 39 to 42 that many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony and went to hear him for themselves. And they declare in verse 42, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now the contrast here between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 should be striking. In John chapter 3, we had a leader of the Pharisees coming to Jesus, and at least thus far, it seems that he rejected Jesus. Then in chapter 4, we have this Samaritan woman looked at as a pagan half-breed, testifying that Jesus is the Christ and that Many in her town also testify that Jesus is the Christ. That here these Samaritans are added to the stack of witnesses that John has already presented to prove that Jesus is truly the Son of God. So we need to remember here that that John is proving who Jesus is. And by his encounter here, breaking these three rules, talking to a woman, talking to a Samaritan woman, talking to a sinful Samaritan woman, he is showing us not only in her repentance how we should respond to conviction for sin and how we are called to walk in repentance, but also how we should reach out to others, even to those who are viewed as subhuman maybe in our own minds we might not vocalize it but maybe by our actions and our failure to present the gospel to these people we're acting as though these people are beneath salvation that we love ourselves more than them by our unwillingness to share the gospel with them and we'll talk more about this next week but i just want to challenge us as we close here by asking the question Who are the Samaritans in your life? Who are the people that you would never witness to? Maybe it's your arrogant boss, or your atheistic teacher, or your hedonistic classmates, or your antagonistic relatives, or your homosexual neighbors. May this testimony of the power of God's amazing grace fill us all with boldness to to declare the glory of God in the gospel. This was the motivation of David Brainerd when he left the comforts of home. Weak and sickly as he was, if anybody would have had an excuse to, to stay at home, David Brainerd would have. Yet he poured out his life out of love for God and for the people that God came to save. May we look to the example of David Brainerd and others who have gone before, but may we especially, especially look to the example of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and may we by his grace follow in his footsteps in in declaring his kingdom. Let's pray.